we are going to return to that song of praise from Mary near the end of our time today from Luke chapter 1. I want to begin, though, today with just a little bit of history, if that's okay, before we get into our scriptures that we're going to be talking about. You know, in the, the first several hundred years of following the death and resurrection of Jesus, the, the church expended a lot of time and a lot of mental energy attempting to nail down precisely what should be considered orthodox Christian thought. So they gathered in these councils, they gathered in these ecumenical or universal councils with representatives and religious delegates from various parts of the world in order to try to settle disputes and guard against rising heresies of the day. Now, many of those heresies in the first several centuries centered around Christology, centered around how we think and how we speak about Jesus Christ. And one of those first ecumenical councils of the early church convened in the middle of the fifth century in Chalcedon, a city that is in modern-day Turkey, and it was at the center of Christianity in Asia Minor. And this particular council was the fourth ecumenical council, and again, the purpose behind this gathering was to guard against heresy and further chisel out doctrines about Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to take us too deep into the weeds on this today, but one of the enduring conclusions that was reached in that council related to the nature of Jesus Christ and how we should understand and think about the person Jesus Christ. And it was agreed upon that Jesus had two distinct natures, human and divine, that were mystically united in one person. So they set forth that he is perfect both in deity and humanity. He is actually God and actually man. And so the council ended up prescribing that perhaps the best way for us to think of and speak of Jesus would be as the God-man. This phrase, the God-man. Which can be a little confusing, I think, if we don't correctly understand what they were hoping to accomplish through the use of that phrase, the God-man. So, so the goal was not to picture Jesus as sort of this Superman figure. So you have Jesus with a big J or a big G since he is God, a big G embroidered on his clothing. He's this superhero that is hiding behind commoner clothing, the, the suit and the black frame glasses, or in his case, the robe and the sandals. And he's just waiting for a reason to burst through a rock wall or to fly through the air and to save somebody right at the last minute. He moves back and forth between these two natures. Sometimes he's a man, but really there's always sort of this latent superhero power that is there, but the, the two natures are really never coexistent. Obviously, that isn't what the council or the early church in general was trying to get at, quite the opposite, actually. Rather, this language of the God-man was simply an attempt to keep the future church attuned to the fact that Jesus Christ is true God, true man, united mystically in his person. This is the great mystery of the incarnation. 
This is what C.S. Lewis referred to as the grand miracle. And I think it's possible, though, for some that the comic book-inspired mental image of God-man Jesus with the big G embroidered on his chest, I, I think it's possible that that is a much more appealing depiction. Maybe you're thinking, well, I can get behind a God who has that kind of obvious and undeniable strength and isn't afraid to use it even against his enemies if need be. I can get behind a God who is willing to show off a bit in order to get some stuff done. But the picture we get of God in Jesus Christ, the picture we get of the divinity of Jesus Christ is a bit more nuanced, albeit much more mysterious, but it is a much more robust image than that fairy tale picture. And perhaps this fact becomes most clear for us as we consider the mystery of the incarnation itself. And so that's what I'd like to spend our time doing today. And we're going to kind of follow a similar pattern that we followed last week, where we will begin in the Minor Prophets. We'll jump ahead to our New Testament reading today, again from Philippians like last week, and then we'll land in that text that Austin just read a moment ago from Luke chapter 1. But again, we'll begin in the Minor Prophets. Today's Old Testament reading is from Micah. The prophet Micah ministered around the middle of the 8th century BC, and like many Hebrew prophets, he pronounced judgment for Israel and Judah at the hands of Assyria and Babylon, respectively. He pronounces judgment, but like some other Hebrew prophets, we also see him speaking forgiveness over the people of God. And central to that promise of forgiveness is another messianic prophecy, which we find in our text today in Micah chapter 5. At the beginning of Micah 5, we find this Hebrew prophet talking, rather surprisingly, about a tiny, no-name, absolutely insignificant town, Bethlehem. Insignificant, of course, save the fact that it was the birthplace of King David, and David was the greatest king in Israel's history. David was a man who expressed or represented the national golden age for Israel 300 years or so before Micah is writing this prophetic work. But that's about it. There really was nothing else to Bethlehem. It was absolutely irrelevant. It was close to the most important religious city for Jews. It was just a little bit south of Jerusalem. But other than that, there's really nothing going on in Bethlehem. Maybe we could think of it like Lamar, Missouri. Has anybody heard of Lamar, Missouri? It's just like an hour from here. There's nothing there except one of our presidents was born there. Harry Truman was born there, but that's about it. Many of you probably have never even heard of Lamar, Missouri. And that's kind of like Bethlehem. There really was nothing going on there except... David was born there. And then, of course, Micah comes along 300 years after David's birth and says, well, yes, it was David's birthplace, but more importantly, Israel's rightful and eternal king is also going to be born there. We pick it up in our text for today, Micah 5, beginning in verse 2, where we read this. But you, O Bethlehem, 
Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Amen. Micah says, it's not just David, but actually the world's greatest king, the one who would rule not only the people of Israel, but all of the world will come from Bethlehem. This one is going to be great to the ends of the earth. He will change history for the whole world, but his roots will be, he will come from tiny, inconsequential Bethlehem. It really is quite remarkable to think about. Bethlehem is not really the type of town or a town with, that, that is an origin fit for a king. I mean, Jerusalem is just a few miles away And it would be a much more appropriate birthplace for the king of the Jews. And yet that's not how the story goes. A thousand years after David's birth, 700 years after Micah's prophecy here in chapter 5, we find Mary and Joseph heading to Bethlehem due to an imperial decree issued from Caesar Augustus requiring everybody to return to their ancestral home for an empire-wide census. And it just so happens, seemingly coincidental at this point, it just so happens that at this very time that the decree is issued, Mary happens to be pregnant with Jesus, the king that Micah points us ahead to. It seems so random It seems out of place or erroneous, although it is quite coincidental. I mean, surely Micah's audience would have thought, well, Micah must be mistaken about the birthplace of this eternal king, or maybe we are just completely misunderstanding what he is speaking about, especially when they had in their their minds texts like Isaiah 60, which spoke of Israel's future glory and how great it would be and prestigious it would be. And then Micah says, well, the king is going to be born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, not a city of prestige. Maybe we are missing the point. Surely this king, this ruler won't come from Bethlehem. But that's just it. Maybe... It was a problem of misunderstanding, not Micah, but maybe it was a problem of misunderstanding the nature of their God. I love that the name Micah can be translated as the rhetorical question, who is like Yahweh? How appropriate, considering the message we are reading in Micah chapter 5, who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh who would come into the world in inconsequential Bethlehem. 
And then the book, Micah, ends with a similar question being voiced explicitly in chapter 7, verse 18, where he says, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Who is a God like you? This isn't what we expect from our God. We expect the God-man coming in prestige and conquering. And discussing the likely, uh, unlikely nature of this promise that we read in Micah 5 of this ruler's Bethlehem origin. I mean, why Bethlehem? Jerusalem is just a, a few miles away. It doesn't make sense that he would come in inconsequential Bethlehem. Commenting on the unlikely nature of these events, Walter Brueggemann suggests this approach to Micah 5. He said, our task is to let the vulnerability of Micah 5 disrupt the self-congratulations of other royal texts like Isaiah 60 that are speaking about the prestige and the glory of Israel, to let the vulnerability of Micah 5 disrupt our self-congratulations. And then he goes on to say, most of us are looking in the wrong place. We are off by nine miles. In other words, most of us are typically looking in Jerusalem to find our God, not explicitly, but we are looking in the center of prestige. We are looking in the center of power and religious notoriety, and perhaps Micah 5 would say to us that God is found in other places as well. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like our God? Who pardons sin and offers forgiveness against all odds? Who is like our God who comes as a baby in Bethlehem? The answer to those rhetorical questions is, of course, there is no God like that. So we jump now from the minor prophet ahead to the New Testament reading, to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, where he is getting at this same question of who is like our God. We begin reading in verse 5, where he gives his audience this instruction, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the incredible description of the incarnation that we get from the Apostle Paul. This is who God is, not grasping divinity, Paul says, but emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, born as a human, humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. So with Paul's description of the incarnation in mind, maybe the Bethlehem birth of this king shouldn't be unexpected. Maybe it wasn't a mistake after all, or just a faulty GPS setting that led Mary and Joseph to this no-name town. And so exhausted from travel, they give up and settle in small, tiny Bethlehem. Now, maybe this 
was the plan all along. One of the great truths that we find being woven throughout some of the the stories in our scriptures and in many ways culminating in the incarnation is the incredible truth that God is working even when we don't recognize it. God is working in unlikely and unexpected ways. God is working in unlikely and unexpected places. So perhaps at times when we don't see God at work, maybe God isn't absent, but maybe we are looking in the wrong place. And maybe we are looking for the wrong thing. Maybe we are looking in Jerusalem when God is being born in Bethlehem, looking for something extraordinary, something prestigious, Something that is making waves and dramatically altering the current realities of our world in a noticeable and powerful way. But maybe that's not how God is at work. I think the incarnation reminds us that we find God at work in those unexpected, those small, those places of humble beginning and inconsequential places And then when we find God at work, we join that work. Now, that is not at all to say that this will be an easy transition for us to make in our minds. It definitely isn't easy to accept because I think we like the bright lights and big cities. We we like the superhero image. We like the noticeable the admirable, we like the award-winning effect of power, but Jesus comes along and says, I am going to show you a different way. This is not easily accepted. The message of smallness, the message of humility and vulnerability that our God puts on will not stir crowds into a frenzy. In fact, it often turns the crowds We see this in Dostoevsky's great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, in that great Grand Inquisitor chapter. One of the character Ivan's main points in his critique of God is that very thing. Jesus cannot be the all-powerful God. He refuses to seek comfort. He refuses to seek security and to seek power. The, The baby born in Bethlehem surely can't be the king of the world. That's too humble. It's too vulnerable. It's too weak for an eternal king. But again, we are confronted with the question from Micah, who is a God like ours? Commenting on some of these themes, Fleming Rutledge said, Jesus brought the reign of heaven to earth, but in a guise so humble and lowly that it knocked the ruling powers both church and state, so to speak, entirely off balance, causing them to react against their own best interests. She went on to say, the strange, virtually invisible way in which God made his appearance in the world is the guide to the Christian life. In Jesus Christ, we find a God who comes in seemingly inconsequential ways, 
hoping to be found by those who seek, not necessarily setting out to astonish and overwhelm folks into belief, but drawing with beauty. Humble, lowly, unnoticed, yes, but beautiful nonetheless. Who is like our God? So we back up to our gospel reading for today, Luke chapter 1, where Austin began just a few moments ago. After the birth of Jesus is foretold by the angel Gabriel to Mary, Mary, you have found favor. You are the recipient of the grace of God. She hurries to tell her relative Elizabeth, relaying the news and perhaps also looking for some consolation and encouragement during this overwhelming season of life. And as we read in Luke chapter 1, when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, she is filled with the Holy Spirit. And we are told that the baby she is carrying, John the Baptist, leaps in her womb. And she says to Mary, blessed are you among women. Why should the mother of my Lord even visit inconsequential me? So maybe you're picking up on this common thread from Micah chapter 5, inconsequential Bethlehem. We will have the great king of the world coming. And then Elizabeth in chapter 1, why would the mother of my Lord even visit inconsequential me. And then Mary's song of praise from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. When Jesus arrives, he exalts who? He exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. He restores Israel, not as was expected but he restores Israel nonetheless. There are so many wonderful features of the story that we find in Luke chapter 1 and 2, but one of the things that keeps popping up in this story is the incredible humility displayed. We saw it all the way back in Micah chapter 5, inconsequential Bethlehem. We see it from... Elizabeth, why would the mother of my Lord visit me? We see it from Mary. He has seen the humble estate of his servant, and yet he has done great things for me. And we see it from, probably most strikingly, from Jesus Christ himself, who, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, humbles himself, empties himself. 
I love what we read in Psalm 40, a psalm that begins with these words. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And then if you jump to the very end of that psalm, that idea is reinforced in verse 17 where it says this, As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. You know, I think when we rightly think of ourselves, we recognize in line with Psalm 40 that we are poor and needy. We recognize that our confession must be similar to Mary in her incredible Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and yet he has done great things for me. We recognize our humble estate, but we are comforted with the knowledge that God actually thinks of us. And the incarnation, this great mystery, Jesus as a baby born in Bethlehem of all places, not in Jerusalem, certainly not in Rome. No, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It seems so unlikely that God, the God of the universe, the ruler of this world, would think of me in my humble estate when I am poor and needy, but this is who our God is. It's who our God is. He's working even when we don't recognize it. He's coming into the places that are shocking and unexpected. He is thinking of the people maybe we would think he shouldn't be thinking of, like you and I. He hears even us. He is with even us, even now. Who is like Yahweh? Who is a God like ours? There is no God like this. I heard a pastor recently comment, speaking of Jesus, that every eye will behold Jesus. But the question we must ask is, will every eye recognize him? And that becomes a much more difficult question to answer. He went on to say the strange, virtually invisible way in which God made his appearance in the world is the guide to the Christian life. It's not just who God is, but what he calls us to embody as well. Kevin, if you all want to come up. This is not just who our God is, but what he calls us to embody as well. So may we be reminded this morning that this is exactly what our God is like. And this is what he calls us to. A life of self-emptying love that he beautifully demonstrated. 
God is working in the most unlikely, the most unnoticed and unexpected places and ways, and we are called to follow that lead, to live in that manner in those places. So this morning, I invite you, I call you to follow our King into unexpected places. Would you stand? As we prepare to celebrate around the table this morning, say a prayer. Lord Jesus, our souls magnify you this morning. We praise you. We declare that there is no God like you. We are comforted by the thought that you see us in our humble, our poor, our needy estate, and yet you choose to be with us. You choose to forgive us. You choose to love us. And we are filled with awe this morning. There is no God like you who brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. So Jesus, may we accept your call. May we clothe ourselves in the same vulnerability. May the same invisibility, the same humility for the sake of those around us. Jesus, we celebrate your love this morning. We celebrate your love exemplified so beautifully and surprisingly in Bethlehem. Lord Jesus, we look to you as our guide. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?